Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Arsblog 20 podcast series in which we celebrate 20 years of Arsblog by talking to a guest about a calendar year of the site's existence between 2002 and 2022. We have arrived at the year 2019 and with me to have the chats about that is James Bange from CBS Sports. Hi, James. What a year. I picked this myself, but it's one of the worst years I, I could think of. And, you know, going through the low, it's entirely, almost entirely low lights. Um, and going <laughs> through them, there are a lot I left out as well. <laughs> I'm sure we can uh, do our best to, at least with the benefit of time, make light of some of these low lights. But you're clearly a, a glutton for punishment. So let's kick off and tell us what's the first pick you got from uh, 2019. So the first thing I want to talk about was was Baku, not just the game itself, but kind of the way it became this horror show. And mm. it, I think it starts, and I, there's loads of angles to this. I think it starts not with the game itself, but going right back to um, late April and Unai Emery's spectacular bungling of fourth place, um, mm. which felt like it was there. I, you know, I was looking back, there's a slightly fortuitous but wonderfully shithouse win over Watford where um, about the ball deflects a, a Ben Foster goal kick or a Ben Foster clearance deflects in off a of Bamiyang Troy yeah. Deeney sees red Arsenal up to fourth everything feels like it's going to be okay and there's a week that they've just got to negotiate where they've just got to beat get a few points against Palace Wolves and Leicester and mm. Wolves and Leicester really good at the time and then Emery just messes it up you know, that playing Mavropanos, playing Jenkinson at wing back and Elneny against Palace, that all goes wrong. Um, and then Wolves and Leicester blow, blow them away. So fourth place is gone and you have to go to Baku and beat Chelsea. Mm. Horrible. The pressure there was, you could feel, and you could feel it. And there was, there wasn't quite that same pressure for, for Chelsea. If I remember rightly, they'd finished in the top four. So they were kind of, it was a grand day out for them. Mm. For for Arsenal and, you know, obviously for for the guys that travel, I remember Tim Stillman did a great diary, didn't he, for Ars blog yeah. on his, his great odyssey to get to what is basically Central Asia almost. Um, it was a horrible trip. I, there's some wonderful people in Azerbaijan, but you're acutely aware when you're there that what you're engaged in is... Uh, soft, you know, is a PR exercise for the, the Azeri regime. Mm. Um, and then to top it all off, it was an absolutely horrible game. I mean, one of the most frustrating months 
I think, in Arsenal's recent history. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with any of that. I suppose the another angle we could talk about is Henrik Mkhitaryan, of course, not being available for that game. And that was a big issue around the time. Um because of the um, the political issues there. But you're right to talk about that end of, of the season. And, you know, when you look at those fixtures, Palace, Wolves, Leicester and Brighton, Arsenal took one point from 12 at a key moment in the season. Very, very much a sliding doors moment for, for Unai Emery. When you consider that um, Arsenal finished one point off the top four, one point from those 12, you know... I mean, it really was, uh, in some ways, a precursor of what was to come, I think, after what had been a reasonably, reasonably okay season. Um, that that last period really, really sowed the seeds of doubt over Unai Emery for a lot of people, I think. Yeah, I think so, because... What what he didn't seem like he was someone that could he, he could manage games very well and you know looking back on it there were some great results against Chelsea against Manchester United but the bigger picture and I think you do include managing three big games in a week you know keeping the Europa League Premier League balance in check mm. I think there was a real sense that that was something that was a bit beyond him and we see that kind of coming up throughout this year that he's he can't quite keep plates spinning. Um, you know, yeah, he, yeah, yeah. he couldn't quite. And I think Arsenal was so used to having a manager that could do it all. You remember talking to him about the Mkhitaryan case and it was a sort of, you know, the responses were invariably something like, well, you'll have to talk to, to Raul about that or you'll have to talk to Vinay. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. It, mm. he, it was almost, you know, too much of a lurch away from Arsene Wenger to, to a pure head coach who was used to having technical directors, directors of football saying to, you know, kind of cajoling him and saying, you need to keep an eye on X, Y, and Z. You mm. need to make sure that we actually get these points on the board against Crystal Palace. I wonder if a stronger footballing hierarchy would have would have been across that. And yeah, I mean, we could talk also at length about how, how frustrating a, a trip Baku was for, yeah. for those fans that made it. Well, for the fans, yeah. I mean, if you could get there, you had to get there by planes, trains, and automobiles, basically. It was round the houses. and um, I think I spent a night sleeping on the floor of Istanbul Airport. Right, <laughs> just to just get to a get connecting there. flight. Yeah. Yeah, to go and watch Arsenal in their first European final in a generation play absolutely garbage. Yeah. I mean, that is the thing. It was like such a big opportunity, such a big moment. There was, there was some talk, wasn't there, about how the team prepared for that game and how, how long they actually spent in Baku. Whereas Chelsea kind of came in, did the business, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. Arsenal were, were out there for a good while, I think. And um, from what I understand, the players didn't particularly enjoy the experience of being out there for that that length of time and on the night it was a very very difficult game to um experience wasn't it with with Olivier Giroud doing what Olivier Giroud does and has done for Arsenal but he was doing it against us there was the the Mesut Ozil incident when he was taken off in the final and replaced by by Joe Willock which was as pointed a substitution as I can really remember uh, at Arsenal and, and losing to a London rival. 
I mean, whatever about getting there, coming home from that must have been hell for the Arsenal fans who, who went all that way in the hope of seeing something, as you say, generational when it comes to success. And instead, we got our arses handed to us by Chelsea. Yeah, a lot of what you say there really rings true about how I felt like Arsenal as a club, as a playing staff, were a little bit naive and inexperienced. And Chelsea knew exactly what they were doing in this final. You know, Olivier Giroud, Eden Hazard, Pedro, players like that, they were really used to what it means to be playing a big, Mm. be it European or otherwise, a big night for Chelsea. And they just, they adapted to all the little things, you know, right down to kickoff, was it like, 11 o'clock at night. Yeah, it's and there crazy. Were, I think it, it felt like really for Arsenal, you could feel that having been there for so long, having been waiting for that kickoff for so long, that it, it got to them. Chelsea were playing with like, they were playing with found money. They were already in the Champions League. It mm. was it was quite fun for them. And, you know, Kante turns up as well and, and demolishes things. But for Arsenal, they just, they could have been in that position, but they'd allowed the stakes to get so huge that it, it just crippled everyone and, yeah, it was. I mean, it was a fantastic performance by Giroud. Made it all the crueler, but mm. yeah, I think that really did set the tone for what was to to come over yeah. the following I few mean, months. Do you think that? Do you think that failure to secure top four when when top four should have been well secured before that put too much pressure on the team ahead of that final? Yeah, I, I think the final would be complete. Would have been completely different if the roles were reversed. Mm. I'd, I mean, I still think that maybe Chelsea might have because the the things about an actual final you favour Chelsea. They had the ex- collective experience yeah. and things like that. But the pressure was just, was crushing Arsenal. You could, you could feel it. You could sense it before they flew out. You could tell in it, Unai Emery's, the way he was speaking. I remember that mm. Burnley press conference from the final day of the season. There was a sense of edginess, a sense that that they were thinking we have to do everything to be one step ahead of Chelsea. And I think in the end, it just meant that Mm. Come those ninety minutes, there was they couldn't relax, they couldn't enjoy the occasion, and they just they were crushed by the weight of it. Right on to the next fun topic. What have we got? <laughs> um, Nicola Pepe still Arsenal's right. all-time record transfer. Um, he and this 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 whole window. I think what's fascinating is at the time we felt like this was the truest statement of intent. You know, you were you were you were out in America at the time as well, weren't yeah. you? Kind of the first time we really met, um, and it, almost sort of on a daily basis, there was new news about a new signing. Danny Ceballos. I, I also felt like Arsenal were beating Tottenham to every deal. You know, Saliba. They were getting that one over the line ahead of Spurs. There was talk that Spurs would go for Ceballos, and they got that done. And then almost the the cherry on top of all these deals was was getting Nicola Pepe in it. It felt like something really significant and mm. a, a show of of force because he was the, the the most expensive player, the star of Ligue 1. But you look back at it now and you think, who were Arsenal really competing with? So, you know, there was talk of Napoli. Yeah. Didn't really transpire into a bid. And what was the what was the plan with him? I, I was looking at his sort of numbers from that that 2018. Uh, was it the his final 2018 to 19 with Lille, mm. and he was a fantastic goal scorer, really capable of getting into the box. But everything you know, everything that I was told was that Arsenal sort of saw it as a 
you know, he would, he would play on the right of a Liverpool-style front three with Lacazette in the middle and Aubameyang off the left. And you didn't, that's what you didn't need. You didn't need a pure goal scorer off the right. You had Aubameyang and you had, at the time, Lacazette was, was still scoring consistently as well as assisting. It just felt like the wrong deal, a huge, huge price. I think one of the interesting things since Raul Sanye's left, what you hear a lot about him is that he would say to, to people around Arsenal, I don't, I'm not a football person. I don't know, you know, the tactics. That's not up to me. I'm the deal maker. So Arsenal, uh, Arsenal, whoever Arsenal identified Pepe. We know it wasn't Emery. They identified Pepe. They got that deal done. Obviously, he was viewed as younger. He was young, younger than Wilfred Zaha. They got a deal done that, as we all know, since has had an awful lot of red flags raised, raised around it. Mm. But it's just in a. He's never quite fit because he's not. He came in. Yeah. He came into a team that didn't need him. Yeah, it's it's such a strange one. It really is because all summer Emery had been talking about Zaha and had been pushing for Zaha. Um, and I think it told us something about what they thought of Emery. I don't mean that they were completely dismissive of him, but he said, "I want a Premier League experienced, right-footed winger who plays on the left." And they got him a non-Premier League experience, left-footed winger who plays on the right and who needs to play in a kind of counter-attacking team. I think that is one of the one of the problems that Pepe has had is is how exactly he fits in or how his skill set can be used by the various managers that he has. So Emery wanted one thing, they got him another. It's really interesting you talk about like who made that decision. Who was the guy who said, let's get Emery or uh, Pepe rather? Who was the one who said, this is the deal that we should do? I mean, it's all well and good, Raul, saying I'm I'm just the guy who makes the deals. But, you know, I think we can all do a deal. And I'm not saying this is the case, but we could all do a deal if we were to, you know, pay over the odds. If you've got a car that's worth 20 grand and I come along and offer you 100 grand for it, uh, you know, I'm not a great negotiator or a great businessman. Um, so... It is a strange one, and it's never quite felt like um, part of a, a strategy. It felt more like the kind of deal that was done to to sort of win the transfer window, if mm. you if you know what I mean. Because I remember waking up, I, I was um, it was after we'd done the various games on that US tour, and I I was going back home. I spent a couple of days in New York, and I woke up one morning in New York with my phone going crazy, and everyone's going, Pepe, Pepe, I'm fucking 72 million Pepe, and David Ornstein has confirmed Pepe, and, all, and people are going bananas and loving it, and understandably so, because there was also the, the We Care Do You uh, thing that summer too. So there was real focus on what sort of investment the Cronkies were going to make because they had become at that point the the 100% shareholders. So, yeah, I'd love to know the history of that one. I'm not sure we'll yeah. ever get the full story. Yeah, I'm pretty certain we won't because, you know, I think an awful lot of the, these deals, as you say, they were made to be good deals, mm. not necessarily to give the team what it needed. And, you know, the other example of this is, is William Saliba. We know that... Um, Emery wanted Harry Maguire, who would have cost more. Mm. But again, it was that desire to, to get better now. But Saliba looks like such a shrewd bit of business. You know, let's go and get the... And he may well prove to have been, but he wasn't what Arsenal needed at the time, you know. 
we haven't mentioned this, but Lauren Koscielny was on strike, so they needed a senior centre-back. Um, and instead, they went out and got a, a, a teenager yeah. um, at the time. And it may well prove to be £27 million bargain in three or four years' time. But it just was – these were not moves being made to get Arsenal immediately better. No. Which is very strange because – we see so much of Arsenal's business since they dropped out of the Champions League has been the sort of desperate rush to get back into mm. it. I pick up on the We Care Do You movement because I almost forgot it. But I think the the ructions that it created were really significant. I mean, a bit of behind-the-scenes stuff from that US tour. Arsenal played in Denver. I, I don't think you flew out for that one, did I, you? I wasn't in Denver. I, I was in... LA at the time and I think that game was taking place in Denver but I didn't go to that one and that was the one where you know I, I pretty much landed that day and kind of saw the uh, saw the We Care Do You movement mm. you get to the stadium and there is a buzz around Arsenal and not a positive buzz and Josh Kroenke is there and you know there'd been lots of conversation I hadn't been involved in them but there had been conversations about getting Josh to speak. It seemed you know, mm. great that we were out in the US. It'd be important that Josh gives gets a message out to the fans. And suddenly that bursts into life mm. in light of the Weak Edgy movement. He's talking to to us reporters that day. And, you know, I, you, I remember seeing a, a real pained presence in his eyes. Now, that's not me saying that I think, you know, I think there are still questions to be asked even now about how much emotionally the Cronkies are invested in Arsenal. Mm. But I think it was very clear that they really felt they it hit them hard the sense that that they that the Arsenal fans were that unhappy with them and felt they were such poor custodians, and I think maybe that's how you see Pepe, because at that time, a lot of people close to Arsenal, myself, David Ornstein included, were being told there is not money to sign Nicola Pepe, and that money emerged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and and some of that is down to creative deal making. But I think it's also true that, that to an extent, this was this was a window to placate the fans. And actually, I think we see with Mikel Arteta this summer that being willing to get players that fans might think are rubbish, but you think is good, it's quite a good way to do things. Yes. Can we go back just to the Lauren Koscielny thing as well? Because I, I still think that is an extraordinary um, story, an extraordinary turn of events where the club captain who had missed nine months, a little bit more with a cruciate injury that he picked up in the Europa League semi-final against Atletico Madrid. The club had done this uh, really amazing. I don't know if you remember, they did this amazing uh, documentary on Koscielny's return, 20, 30 minutes long. Like the hard work, the dedication that he put into it, the sacrifice, the physical pain, all of the stuff that he went through. And I know that he was unhappy with how much he was used towards the end of the season because maybe he felt like they're putting me at risk of uh, another injury or or um, recurring the injury that he already had. But for him, as a guy who really did give everything for the club, he had his moments like all defenders do, but he was the captain. He really did put his body and his head and all kinds of bits of himself on the line for this football club. Like, I don't, you know... Never seen someone get so many fucking kicks in the head as Koscielny during his time here. To 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 literally feel like he's in a position where I'm going on strike. That's it. I'm going on strike. I'm not going on the tour. And 
you know, I know this is not going to go well for me. I know it's not going to go down well with the fans. It's going to pretty much tank my reputation at this football club where I've been for, what, eight, nine years? Mm. But, like, I feel like this is what I have to do. When you think about all of that, it was so out of character for him. I really feel like there's more to that story that is yet to emerge. If it ever emerges, maybe there's NDAs or all sorts attached to it. But that was a pretty seismic thing. And and like there's another part of my brain that is a bit suspicious that the player that we got in to replace him was was David Luiz because of the various connections and agent connections and all of that kind of stuff. I, I, I really think there's a story around the Koscielny departure, the Luiz arrival, whether it was manufactured or otherwise, I can't say. But I, I, I think there's a lot to this. I think the central theme that kind of runs through this year for Arsenal and I think we'll definitely pick up at the end is is the sense that the culture has really gone badly wrong. Mm. That there is that, that there is no one that's on top of things that's really steering this club in the right direction. That you know the the Ivan Gazidis's vision of shared responsibility has has just turned into no one's really taking ownership of things. No one's saying to Unai Emery this guy is our long-serving club captain. Treat him carefully. Mm. You know, he's, and he, as you say, he has put everything on the line for Arsenal twice. And, you know, we'll see this again. The, the, part of it, I think, is that it's a lack of organisation, which really angers players and angers Granite Xhaka later on in the year. Mm-hmm. And part of it is just that there's something about the culture that we'd seen begin in Wenger. There's too much player power that there's, there's no one spotting these problems before that it's too late. Um, and that's still something Arsenal are having to, to work out. But it's, I think it, at the time we all felt, gosh, that's a betrayal by Koscielny rather than what we really should have thought myself included. How has it got to the stage where, Koscielny, you know, one of the cornerstones of, of the Emirates era, great, great guy, great defender. What, how has he yeah. felt that he has to do that? I think that talk of, you know, it's a very nebulous thing, culture, but you can see when, whether you, if you agree with it or you don't agree with it, you can see when there is something implemented at a football club, whether it's too harsh sometimes or too, too lax, it might be there. But I think there were so many vested interest I don't know is the right way but there were people pulling one way people pulling the other way there wasn't any sense of of harmony of togetherness it felt like certainly some of the people who were on the executive team at that point didn't really understand and never really fully understood the frustrations that fans were feeling at that time they thought well give them a few signings and it'll all quiet down. But there was more to it, and people could see that, and people were uneasy with what was happening on the pitch and, and all the rest of it. But for a long time, there was it was almost like a blind spot. There was a, a sort of let-them-eat-cake mentality from on high, which came back to bite some people in the end. But, you know, yeah. Anyway, well, what's next? Uh, I'm, I'm double checking. I haven't missed one. Oh, let's go straight to it. Granite Xhaka <laughs> telling the uh, supporters to, to fuck off. Remember that? Remember yeah. when an Arsenal captain told the, the fans to fuck off? Yeah. So, again, this is, is you know, we, it feels like an isolated incident, 
but we know it wasn't. You know, Xhaka was the the heir presumptive when Koscielny was stripped of the, the captaincy. You know, going back to that US tour, first press conference, you know, Emery does, there's Granite Xhaka sat alongside him. And I'm, I'm pretty certain one of us asked, you know, mm. Granite, you're going to be captain, right? And he pretty much thought he was. Um, and then it just keeps going on and it keeps going on. Mm. This vote um, that had to wait until the end of the European transfer window, as though Nacho Monreal, before he goes to Real Sociedad, is going to vindictively go, I'm going to make Mesa Ozil captain. Um, it, I think it, it showed a lack of faith in, in Xhaka. Um, it, sh- it showed question marks that every manager seems to have at some stage over him, except Mikel Arteta. Um, and I think, you know, he felt this really deeply. And whatever his his strengths and weaknesses on and off the pitch, he is someone that is expressive, is he, he, he shares and feels things deeply. I remember a few, I think it was a few weeks before the the incident at Crystal Palace when he's substituted off does not exit the pitch quickly and and that leads to fans booing and and so on. I remember him coming out uh, to speak to us in the mix zone at, at Sheffield United. Um, he got quite sweary, which is always a really exciting moment for a, <laughs> a football reporter. Whenever they say "fuck," you go Ooh, stop the presses. He swore. Um, but I mean, it was you know he was saying this is not good enough. We know, we all need to buck our act up, um, and I think he sometimes he you know again going back to these culture things. I think he felt like I'm trying here. I'm doing what I can. I'm working my mm. ass off for you lot. And he probably felt like the fans saw him as a, a real problem. And again, it points to some really deep set problems and you know the what you were mentioning that growing divide that we saw in we care to you you know i think that's reflected in the the supporters booing jacka and yeah. a really horrible state of affairs it, it really was uh, because like i'm not here to defend granite jacka or defend the way he behaved or the way that he reacted but this was a situation that was smoldering and smoldering and then there was a tinderbox and off it went it was on fire I mean, Emery's indecision over appointing a captain after Koscielny uh, clearly was a, I think he was stripped of the captaincy before the team even went to the US. Mm. You know, that decision should have been made, like give yourself a week or two to think about it by all means, but make your decision, make it public. Everyone knew that it was going to be Granite Xhaka, whether they liked it, didn't like it, whatever. Everyone knew it was going to be Granite Xhaka. And then it was like, oh, we're going to have a vote. I I could be wrong, but it was like, I think, almost two months between Koscielny uh, being stripped of the captaincy and Xhaka eventually being made captain. And I remember After the September international break. Yeah, exactly. And there was a growing unease in general about the way the team was playing, the way the team was performing. And there was a growing sense that I think Granite Xhaka became, in some ways, which again is not to excuse him for some of the Granite Xhaka stuff that he does. He is Granite Xhaka. That is what he does. He became something of a lightning rod for for fan unrest with the way the team was performing. I remember being at the Aston Villa game um, and he was taken off 
I remember him being mm. taken off. I'm just going to look at the date of that fixture if I can in the 2018-19 season. Sept- late, late September. Late September. That's right, because it would have been... So I remember thinking, fuck, he was taken off and there were some boos and there was some jeering of Xhaka at that point. And I'm thinking like, how the fuck do you make this guy captain now? How can you possibly <laughs> make him the captain? And that was the game, I think, when Maitland Niles was sent off and um, we won it 3-2 with 10 men. But that reaction to to Xhaka's substitution felt... It felt like there was trouble brewing. And ultimately, him being that lightning rod was reflected in what happened against Crystal Palace then, you know? And I think to an extent, it probably needed to happen. It had been three years with Granite Xhaka and it has been another nearly three since. I think at least now there's a rapprochement, but I think Granite has had kind of perhaps because he's not N'Golo Kante Mm. and it might have been Kante instead. I think he has come to be seen as synonymous of the sort of post 2016 decline. He's like the constant, isn't he? He's like the, yeah. the, 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 the colored, the writing through the stick of rock that is Arsenal. It just says Xhaka all the way through, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I think at least once that, you know, I think everyone feels like, you know, it, it's probably something that no one listening to this podcast is enjoying having dredged up again, because I think most fans there probably, somewhat regret it. It was just, it was not a nice experience to go through. Certainly Granite, although he's still never apologized, um, is not happy about how those things happened. But yeah, I think at least since then, we've kind of all had to go, okay, we might not like each other, but we're going to have to get on for now. It is, he is in some ways quite fascinating to me. Because they just ever since he arrived, there's always been something. He's just one of those guys around whom or to whom or because of whom things happen that aren't really supposed to happen. But he just continues along and fucking, yeah, he is what he is. But, I, you know, I think when you do talk about that incident and it's, you know, it's unacceptable for the Arsenal captain to take off the armband, throw it on the ground and tell the fans to fuck off. I mean, there's no... Um, condoning that you cannot say that's acceptable but I don't think you can discuss it in the midst of time without looking at the context of it and why it happened and I think we've we've done that here yes exactly and I think maybe I'm going to jump ahead to my next one because these two get very interlinked the the slow the the slow death of Unai Emery's tenure which Mm. I think kind of actually becomes inevitable around Xhaka you know, I, I was looking at the dates again and we're talking about, how, you know, it certainly wasn't two months, but it was about 10 days, I believe, between mm-hmm. um, Granite Xhaka telling the supporters to, to F off and him being stripped of the captaincy, which was not done in a coordinated, organised fashion. I remember this very well. Mm. It was done in the pre-match press conference uh, against Vittoria where he he was, Emery was asked, uh, Jacker's not here. Do you want to explain? He spe- speaks about Jacker a bit and how he's feeling, and then just drops in in the middle of that statement. Oh, and by the way, he's been stripped of the captaincy. And I'm sat there, the next person to ask a question, going, and we all remember what Unai's uh, what Unai's English was like. And I'm like, did he just did he just strip 
Jacker of the captaincy mid response with no, you know, compared mm. to Bamiyang, it was all choreographed, ready to go. I think this, you know, but what the real issue was that he couldn't get Granite to apologize. He had no power to do anything. You know, he, he, he had no influence over these players. We were hearing stories of David Luiz being unhappy very quickly. Lucas Torreira, obviously, you know, his, his career hasn't gone the way Arsenal fans might have hoped, but he wanted to go. And if Emery was still there in January, he would have submitted a transfer request, was what I heard. But but for all this, Arsenal just couldn't do it. They couldn't pull the trigger. They knew it was inevitable. They knew it couldn't go on like this. But what they'd learned from life under Arsene Wenger, or, or what they thought they'd learned, was that they're not a sack? They don't want to be a sacking club. Mm. This was the thing I heard over and over again because you would have this conversation after every bad result, and they go, "We're not that sort of team. We're not Chelsea. We don't sack managers because you know we don't sack managers every time there's a downswing." But it was obvious it was terminal. Mm. You know, there were on the field you could see all these desperate swings and changes of system. David Luiz playing defensive midfielder, trying to come up with any idea that worked, but. The fans didn't want to be there. The players weren't listening to him. And yet Arsenal kept persevering and you know, ended up throwing off a hospital pass to Freddie Jungberg because I think that he, they sacked him almost immediately after the last international break. It was... Yeah. I mean, there was, wasn't there a statement, if I remember correctly, like a couple of weeks before and there was one of the, the poor results in the Premier League. And I think the statement, this is what I, what I was talking about earlier, where there was a, a gap between or they did they didn't understand or they were choosing not to understand what was going on and and fan um fans being disenfranchised i remember it was described as noise we won't yes. give in to fan noise as if it was irrelevant in some way and then a couple of weeks later of course they had to uh, they had to pull the trigger i mean there was that was it southampton when Lacazette scored a goal. (laughs) We were losing 2-1, and I I don't think I've ever seen anything like that. Like, I never want Arsenal to lose, ever, ever, ever. And I will not in any game, but I I remember the reaction to that goal. It was like, oh. It wasn't like a last-minute equaliser where everyone went absolutely bananas. It was was extremely muted. Mm. And that told its own story about where many fans were. the players as well as the the players. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's very true. That's very uh, true. Lacazette was thought like, oh my gosh, what have I done? Yeah. So I mean, Freddie then, what did he have? Five games, something like that. Freddie and Per Mertesacker. The the most. Again, we, you know, we come back to no one having an eye on things. I remember talking to uh, to Freddie. Uh, he was saying to me, "I need I need staff." I've got the uh, head of the academy. Some of the play, the, the the coaches I'd worked uh, I've worked under with the under twenty threes, but obviously everyone had left with Emery. Mm. And I remember that you know there was the site uh, was it the bench for the first game against Norwich. It was him, Per Mertesacker, um, that the, a fitness guy, and then just sort of clutch of clutch the, of like goalkeeping and stuff. Goalkeeping coach as well, wasn't it? Was it? Yeah, yeah, uh, and. You know, I mean, of course, you, you sort of you you, ha- you can't you can't keep Unai Emery staff without Unai Emery, but it, mm. it that situation just kept dragging on and on. You know, it's it is totally fine when you've sacked him on a Friday that you don't have full staff in place on the 
on the Sunday to play Norwich, mm. but it was it was the week after. It was the week after, and I think it's a real shame. I suspect it may well have have done some degree of harm to to Freddie's managerial ambitions. That he you know he lost to Brighton. He uh, kind of I think the only team he beat was was West Ham. He got West dumped Ham, by yeah. City, uh, but they they never gave him any any tools to work with because again there was there was no vision for how to get this done. And what what's remarkable is that they ended up hiring the assistant for Man City, who we all knew wanted the job. And they could have done that, you know, in the space of a few days, took the took best part of a month out of it. And mm. I know it's not harmed Freddie's standing with the fans, but it, it was a real shame to, to treat him like that, I thought. Yeah, there wasn't a great deal for, for him to work with or... Um... You know that 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 idea that if you're going to make a decision to sack a manager, um, you still have football games to win. You still have points to play for, and and Arsenal, like it couldn't have been any kind of surprise that they had to make that decision on Unai Emery. You know what I mean? This was this was something everybody could see coming. It was a train coming down the tracks. That again, if they they were ostriches with their heads in the sand, I don't know what it was. I don't really understand what the reluctance was to make the decision and by the time they had made the decision they've let themselves in um in a bit of a hole but i i guess that brings us to the the final point is it the the arrival of i mean yes. when you when you talk about a, a lack of vision or a lack of preparedness it's quite interesting that the man that they brought in is the guy who in large part has provided that mm to Arsenal at a time when it was really badly needed. I know people are still um, maybe a bit on the fence, but, you know, at the very least, you would have to acknowledge that Mikel Arteta has been consistent in what he has said uh, about what he wants to do, how he wants to do it, what he thinks the club is about, etc., etc. And that clarity of thought at least is comforting because it makes you think, well, maybe we can get somewhere rather than just sort of make it up as you go along. Yes. Uh, and you saw it on day one. I, I mean, we all remember that that press conference and those lines, you know, the tree is going to shake, I think is the one that stays with me. Yeah. The, and I've got, I can see that, you know, his, the program from his first home game in, in front of me as well. You know, there was a, he looked like an Arsenal manager on day one in that, you never see him wear the club suit anymore, but it didn't mm. suit him. I thought he, he's, you know, everything we've talked about over 2019, he's seen it from afar and he saw it the minute he walked through the door that there was something not right about the culture of this place, that, that, it, that it wasn't like a winning mentality. And you, you heard everything in his press conference. It was quite a stark you know, home truths sort of press conference from a manager who a, a manager who has never managed a game of football before in his life. Mm. I, I absolutely agree that there are still unanswered questions about Mikel Arteta, but I think it's very fair to say that he saw what the problem was, how much he solved that on and off the pitch. I don't know. We maybe won't know until the end of this season at, the, at least, but he, at the very least, his appointment forced Arsenal to address these issues. Mm. And a lot changes very quickly after he comes in. You know, it's not long then before he is tasked with being the manager 
the man that leads the culture. You know, Raul Sanye leaves as well. Uh, Husfami departs not soon after it. This isn't the end of the turbulence off the pitch. Mm. But I think bringing in Arteta meant that Arsenal kind of started to see what the problems were. Yeah, the the, the quick fix, sticking plaster um, approach to squad building, team building, and everything else just couldn't continue because there were too many disasters, too many problems, too many errors, too many egos, all of those kinds of uh, uh, of things. And I remember, you know, there was a game against Man City at the Emirates when we all knew basically that he was going to be the next guy. It was just a question of, of when. It wasn't really if, it was when. But his face on the bench, it was a really, really limp, lifeless soul-sucking Arsenal performance. One of those that Man City can inflict upon you. I mean, I think it's fair to say Mm -hmm. that, you know, because of the kind of team they are and the way that they play, they can do that to a lot of teams. But against us that day, like you could, you it would just highlighted how much was missing and what needed to change and how things needed to change. And I remember seeing it on Arteta's face, and I think that fed very strongly into that first press conference when he, he came in, looked around and thought, Okay, this is wrong. It's not just fight, not right; it, it's wrong. The fight had gone out of the whole club. Yeah, and I think you know we're, we're talking now just after the the EFL Cup semi final second leg, which was a really disappointing result. But one of the things I came away from it thinking was, "Gosh, the atmosphere is quite special at the Emirates at the moment." And you know, I'm just looking back at that City game. Arsenal were, Arsenal went in, I think, and I, I suspect it was clinging on to a nil-nil, but it was nil-nil, or I think City might have scored just before half-time. They, they stayed in the game for quite a long time. But it was the Arsenal of, oh, here we go again. You know, the fans, mm. every time, you know, goal goes in, it's the, right, should we should we head a bit early today? Um, yeah. And that, you can't, that has not entirely vanished from the Emirates Stadium and it's not entirely vanished from the squad. But it's, you know, the strides have been made and he understood that that was the real problem, that the, the spirit needed to change as mm. much as the the playing staff, the, you know, the, 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 the staff off the pitch. It, it's really about changing attitudes at Arsenal. Yeah. And it's still a work in progress, I think it's fair to say. Um, well, look, there weren't too many highlights, but it was certainly a, an interesting year um, on and off the pitch for Arsenal. So, uh, James, thank you very much for taking the time to relive it with us, and we will talk to you soon. Thank you very much. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Thank you very much indeed to James. You can find him on Twitter at James Benj, at James Benj, and of course, doing football stuff for CBS Sports. I have to tell you, that doing this many podcasts all in a row, pretty much all around the same time, it becomes more and more difficult to think about how to end the podcast. Sometimes I think I should just stop. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 